Welcome to Hire It Advisor, the Baker Tilly podcast dedicated to providing insightful guidance and leading practices for college, university, and research institution leaders and board members, experts and thought leaders in higher education finance, institutional operations, collegiate athletics and esports, health and wellness, data analytics, and more. Join our podcast host, higher education practice leader Dave Capitano for bi-weekly episodes to discuss the latest news in higher education and the impact these trends and changes have on the industry. This is where you come to learn what's really going on behind the scenes at colleges and universities across the country. Welcome to our Higher Ed Advisor podcast series, where we discuss significant issues and opportunities facing higher education and explore strategic solutions to help colleges and universities address challenges and achieve their mission. I'm Dave Capitano, the Higher Education Practice Leader here at Baker Tilly. Earlier, I had the pleasure of talking with Mark, the Director of UCI Esports Program. Mark led the efforts to create the very first esports program at a public university. In this podcast, Mark walks us through how he and his team took detailed steps to launch the UCI esports program. Mark gives us helpful suggestions on how to get buy-in across the campus community and make the investment as low risk as possible. Then he builds off the momentum to create one of the leading esports programs we have today. Mark is clearly the go-to person in the field, and we had the pleasure of getting his insights for our listeners. Let's hear what Mark has to say. All right, Mark, let's start off a little bit, just a little bit of the history of uh, UCI's program. And according to your website, you were the first public university to create an official esports program. So maybe take us back in time, back in the 2015-16 time period, when you're kind of contemplating what the vision will look like for this program. Yeah, thanks for this opportunity. So yeah, in, in the summer of 2015, a few colleagues and I saw an opportunity to building esports program. And some of the things that we saw, some of the data points that were motivation for us were one, the world of esports was growing. I was doing a business school paper on Blizzard Entertainment. And my thesis of that paper was, hey, you know, Blizzard should go all in on esports is growing. So we saw esports was growing. While I was doing that research, I read a Facebook article that said UC Irvine, my university, was just ranked the number one school for gamers by College Magazine And they based that off our successful club teams that were winning national titles before national titles even really existed. They talked about the massive events we were throwing. And they also talked about our thriving game design program at UCI. And so those are all very compelling for me to to kind of learn about. And then the number 10 school on that list of top 10 schools was a school called Robert Morris University in Chicago. And the year before in 2014, they had just started the first scholarship esports program at their university. And so for me, all of these things tied together into kind of me starting to whisper this idea around of what would the appetite at UC Irvine be to give scholarships to people to play video games because we're uniquely good at it. It's growing place and it's a way to really differentiate our university because we're, we're this up and coming UC school, we're kind of middle of the pack in the UC system. And our chancellor once said, we can't copy our way to the top. And so if we're going to try to kind of compete with the Berkeleys and UCLA's to be a school of top choice in California, we can't do what everyone else is doing. And so 
Long story short, saw an opportunity. We started to whisper this idea around. We built consensus. We found resource, both space and some corporate sponsors. And eventually that, that December, we pitched our vision to our chancellor and executive cabinet. They were pretty enthusiastic. They'd heard about it from students and other people over the prior few months. And we spent the next nine months building our program, signing sponsorship deals, build, building our arena. And in the fall of 2016, we opened our arena with some varsity esports athletes and a budding new program. So that's how we got started. Mark, you said a couple of things in there I think is important to clarify for our listeners. And one is this concept of giving scholarships to I'm, I'm going to uh, try to quote you from our conversation. Giving scholarships to students to play video games was something that was uniquely different. And uh, could you comment a little bit more how important that was to the overall strategy? Absolutely. I would say both giving scholarships and recruiting, those are two things that were pretty big leaps for UCI and ones that I think we, we expected the campus to be pretty nervous about initially. But with the chancellor's endorsement, we were able to work with admissions and financial aid to kind of to roll that out. But absolutely, if you want to compete at a high level, especially in 2021, 2022, you need to be looking for talent. And the talent, A, is going to need to have special recruiting accommodations similar to special musician or an elite athlete. And also, if you want to compete with universities like UCI that's offering scholarships, it's going to discount their college education. You're going to need to do both of those things. And so we fought hard for those early on. And I think we would not be where we were, where we are right now, had we not been able to, A, recruit athletes uh, specifically for our esports teams and also uh, offers financial aid and uh, through scholarships. You also mentioned you were whispering things around and you found the facility and you found sponsorship. Now, I think those three things are really important. One is the concept that I believe that you, you used was you asked for small things that were non-threatening and then you built off of those asks repeatedly. The second one is that you found unused facility that was easily given over and the third one was corporate sponsors. So let's take one at a time. Tell me a little bit about the whispering around and, and how you started just asking in small, small things. Yeah, I think this is one of the genius moves in retrospect of how we built consensus. So yes, it was initially, I mean, I first whispered it to my wife and she was not discouraging. So I, I knew I could uh, have the confidence to, to keep going. But I eventually uh, had coffee with my now boss, who's the chief of staff for the vice chancellor of student affairs. I identified the vice chancellor of student affairs as someone who could say yes to this idea. And so one, one, a long time ago, I heard a comment that said, never take a no from someone who does not have the ability to say yes. And so for me, I was like, look, the, the vice chancellor is a senior administrator, controls a pretty large budget has a lot of influence. And that person, if they're enthusiastic about it, they can pave the way and be our champion. And so having coffee with his chief of staff to kind of just pick, pick his brain, be like, what's your thought on this? Have you heard of esports? And uh, Edgar Dormitorio is his name. And he was like, yeah, I read, a, I saw a documentary about this and it was on HBO and I'm familiar with this. And I know our students are good at these things. And I was like, oh, okay. So you, you're aware of this this phenomenon. You are aware of faculty are teaching it. And he's like, yeah, that's a great idea. And so his recommendation, it took a, a couple of months to build up the courage, but his recommendation to, to elevate this conversation 
would be for us to find a diverse group of gamers from the gaming club and go to our vice chancellor's open office hours. And this is, I think, honestly, the most brilliant step in the entire process was getting in front of our vice chancellor in a non-threatening, we're not asking for a yes, we're not pitching a program. He doesn't say yes or no at this moment, but just an opportunity to share how big this was, to put it on his radar. And through that, mentioning like, look, like other schools are doing this. What if we create some space and some resources and got some soft verbal approval to look at talking to the student center about space, uh, got approval to ask for some financial support from corporate sponsors. And so just having that in our back pocket was really helpful. So when I had coffee or lunch with the student center director and she, she was like, yes, we have this space, the Zot Zone. It was our billiards room, which was really underutilized. The billiards tables were always empty. The Xboxes in there were always full. And uh, it was a space ripe for, for renovation. So uh, I, I think when we're talking about whispering this idea around, it was finding colleagues in non-threatening moments where you're just talking about it. You're not asking for a yes. You're not asking for a commitment, but you're exploring and broadly, I would say there was a million ways this could have stopped. Had anybody discouraged us along the way or said no, or I don't like that idea, any of these kind of leaders on campus, it would have stopped, I think, right then and there. But we just had all the right people and the right pieces to make this idea happen. Tell us a little bit more how you were able to put, I'll call it the chicken and the egg scenario. You need the corporate sponsors to help you pitch the program, but you need the program to get the corporate sponsors to be enthusiastic. So tell us a little bit about those conversations. Yeah, this is another one of those like miracle plays that we pulled off. And so you're totally right. It is the chicken and egg scenario. If you have infinite money, you can build an excellent program. And if you have an excellent program, you can raise a lot of money. And so we tried to do both of those at the same time. And essentially- Having worked in higher ed for, I think, 10 or 11 years at the time, I knew we couldn't ask for a million dollars and a bunch of space. I knew money and space are the two most constrained resources on a college campus. And so we were trying to solve those as our pitch. So fortunately, I mentioned our students were very successful and a club side and event planning side. And uh, one of our club leaders who I was speaking with at the time was mentoring high school students around esports. And one of the students he mentored uh, was the son of a vice president at iBuyPower. And iBuyPower ended up being the naming named sponsor of our arena, our facility. And so with a few text messages to this high school student he was mentoring, we were able to get a sit-down meeting with iBuyPower. They were thrilled to learn about a UC school they had heard of before, investing into esports. And at that time, I told people what was happening. I was like, look, we are going to build an esports program. I had a layout of the student center. I didn't even have a sponsorship deck at this time. Like none of that existed. I just had a general idea of how much money we might need. And I totally was underestimating that at the time. But uh, I was asking, hopefully, just hoping they would give us some graphics cards or something to kind of get us some momentum. But I threw out uh, an amount of money for renovation and scholarships. And eventually uh, we had signed an NDA and they came back with a really generous proposal where they were going to help us build out the space. They would name it. They would provide equipment. We eventually negotiated a refresh a couple of years down the road to make sure we always had top of the line gear. And so once we had uh, that meeting and it was with the vice president, their head of marketing, their head of esports, a company that was already thinking about esports in a bigger way than most PC companies were at the time. We go back to our, our vice chancellor with an update like, look, the student center is willing to let us have the space. And by the way, company is willing to renovate that space for us. And at that point, he got us on the agenda to meet with the chancellor and the cabinet 
I, I had previously advised student government. And so the student body president was already whispering this around. He'd already mentioned it to the provost. He was already mentioned it to the chancellor. He had actually already gotten it on the radar for our strategic planning committee. So they were, UCI was writing esports into our strategic plan for the university at the time. So all these things were happening simultaneously. And eventually we went back and pitched the chancellor in December, 2015 with all of this kind of in place. So let's let's get the timeline back in, in so for our audience here. So from 2015, the conversations to what you just described, uh, where are we standing? So our first whispered idea was, let's say July of 2015. We met with our vice chancellor probably September of 2015. And then sponsorship and student center happened in that fall. And we uh, were in front of the chancellor with a business plan and sponsorship deal in place in December. So six months from whisper to pitching a business plan that was fully funded. Great background for our audience. So let's fast forward to today. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw another quote out to you that you gave me. You said you didn't want to be in a position where you're begging for money. You want to have a long-term sustainable program. So did you reach that goal? We're not there yet. No, we're not there. I think uh, higher ed moves at a glacial pace, uh, as I think many of your listeners can appreciate. So we're five years into our program. We are one of the gold standards in the industry. Uh, Our teams compete at a high level. We support research. We draw in as much media and, and kind of public attention as anything on campus does. But still, yeah, we're, we're kind of still living year to year. COVID has really been crippling. Our, our budget has historically relied on three revenue streams. One, our arena, our facility is available for people to use by the hour. So a pay-to-play public gaming facility, corporate sponsorships, which we've mentioned, and then also philanthropy. And those have kind of gone up and down over the years. And with the arena closed, that's gone away. Our biggest donor has since shifted gears and is no longer going to fund esports related things. And fortunately, our corporate sponsors are still loving us and enjoying the relationship. So that funding pillar is still there in a big way. But yeah, the campus has yet to really fund much of an esports presence at campus. So with, with COVID crippling our budget, we're now in a deficit. And so it's kind of a time for the university to answer that tough question about what do they want esports to look like. Um, we did uh, work with some students to run a referendum a couple of weeks ago. It ended up not passing. We had historically low voter turnout. So uh, we did not even come close to quorum. We needed 20% of students to vote. We got 7.4%. And those that did vote did not vote in large enough numbers for the esports measure to pass, even if we had hit uh, quorum. So we got less than 50% of the popular vote and we needed 60%. So students are not rescuing our program right now. So we're we're kind of in a limbo phase and uh, we'll have a meeting in a few weeks with our our budget officers and our HR folks to kind of re-envision what a a reduced program looks like in the future. So we're not in this uh, place where we're not begging for money annually. Much of our staff are still contract annual employees, which is really hard to build uh, success around. And so, yeah, even though people look at our program as something to aspire to, I, I feel like there's so much opportunity for growth and permanence that would really elevate our, our efforts even more. Well, from the outside Looking in, you certainly are leading the way in a lot of areas. You mentioned research in the area. I want to talk a little bit about that. Before we get there, I want to uh, just talk a little bit about the status of esports. So we got got varsity, we got club, we got team sports. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how all that plays out for UCI. 
So our program is in student affairs, and I should mention every university kind of looks at and positions esports a little bit differently. Some schools, typically NAIA schools, not NCAA Division I schools, typically, so some schools uh, put them in athletics, but again, not, not NCAA D1 schools historically. Um, and some put them in academic units like uh, Utah and Boise have, have done that. So as a student affairs unit, we kind of look and feel like a student affairs kind of unit that is uh, tragically underfunded, but is very thoughtful about the uh, holistic student experience. And there's a lot of benefits from being connected really deeply to financial aid, our student center, housing, um, lots of lots of groups that uh, have historically or currently fall under the student affairs umbrella. But when you talk about the different levels of varsity and club and team, it's really murky. There's no official definition of varsity. For me, I would say varsity uh, collegiate esports, A, there's at least two or three of these, these few, few items. One, uh, scholarships. Two, a paid coaching staff. Three, a facility. And fourth, I would add on able to use like the, the university marks and name. So I would say of those four elements, if you don't have two or three of those, you're not a varsity program. There's a lot of club esports out there, a lot of student run stuff, and a lot of them are very good. Our varsity teams have lost to club teams just like over the years. So uh, it's not that they can't be good, but I think it's going to gotta succeed or fail based on the talent of students. And they graduate when they graduate, when the good ones graduate, uh, you see a big drop off. And that's where varsity programs, I think, have a huge leg up is that we're going to be way more consistent in terms of retaining talent, institutional knowledge and su- success over time. So. Yeah, I would say that's a little bit about my thoughts on the different levels of club and varsity esports around the country. Well, I love I love the four pillars of success to get to the varsity level. I think that's very insightful for people to aspire to. You mentioned the student experience. And again, one of the things that you, you note on your website is the importance of a healthy life balance for your students. And could you tell us a little bit about what that actually means and how that plays out with regards to your engagement with your student athletes? Yeah, and I will say my, my thoughts on this have evolved over time. And essentially, we want players to live a ha- happy, healthy life, but they're actually living a pretty unbalanced life, right? We want hyper-specialists at this really unique skill set. And I think, I think that's a fine thing to aspire to. I think if you're Kobe Bryant or LeBron James, you're not living a well-balanced life. You're, you're exceptional in something, and you're trying to be happy and healthy in the rest of your life. So we're asking our players to play a lot of video games, to be really excellent at something, but we need to support them so that they can do that. And so uh, we have a player support coordinator who uh, helps make sure that they're thriving academically. That has improved year over year. And uh, I will say our, this last quarter is the first time we've ever had students, none of them flirting with our kind of uh, 2.0 threshold to be on the teams. It's been a challenge to get there. And without our support, they would not, all be above that that threshold because the the default is to play lots of games and not necessarily focus on on studying. The other side of that is health and wellness. So the other things that we really push are physical fitness, movement, understanding how to be healthy. Games are a very sedentary activity. And so we really encourage standing up, focusing your eyes on things in the distance so that your eyes kind of don't get overtaxed understanding how to flex and stretch your wrists so that those don't get injured from repetitive use. Uh, The same stuff that you and I probably get from sitting at a keyboard too much. Our players are certainly vulnerable to. Uh, We have a team psychologist and an exercise physiologist that kind of help with this. And so they have exercise plans, which is kind of focusing on general just health, wellness, flexibility, cardio, fitness. 
those things. And then uh, we realized also team conflict is so prevalent. A lot of these esports athletes haven't had team sports experience, or if they have, uh, their games have been largely outside of any sort of mentorship, coaching purview. And so there's some really hostile, toxic team dynamics that have evolved into esports. And so we have to kind of unteach those and also provide a platform for people to kind of hash out their differences, talk about teamwork, communication, priorities, make sure we all understand we're all trying to win. And so that's also been a huge work in progress, but a humongous success as well. And our teams actually look forward to those conversations. They used to like not understand why they were important or necessary, but over time, people have really come to appreciate that there's a safe space for them to voice their concerns, their dissent, their anxieties, talk about them. And then when their grades are taken care of and their stress has kind of been reduced through kind of some of these efforts, we're certainly talking about all the other stresses in life, whether it's family or financial or what have you, um, then they can play games at a really high level. And that's our goal is to allow them to live this unbalanced life where they're focused really on being a specialist in one thing, but making sure they're successful in enough of the other domains of life, certainly academics, so that they can, yeah, graduate, which all of our students do graduate, and go on to do something great with their life. So not only are you generally focused on the well-being of the student, um, you've also taken a big leadership role in publishing what is said to be the first inclusivity plan. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that came about and some of the details of that plan? Yeah, it was, it was evident, and it is evident to anybody who looks at esports, that it is not as diverse as it needs to be. I, I think it is our most urgent need in esports, right up there with financial sustainability. Those are our two most urgent needs. But if you, especially on the gender side, like it is just not balanced. It is completely male dominated. And so when you're working at a public institution that is champions inclusive excellence that wants to lead the way and certainly does not want to recreate the same barriers that have existed across society. So as we do something new and innovative, it was important for our university to look at this critically. And I thought it was one of the one of the reasons we might be like canceled our first few years. I was like, maybe, maybe we just don't meet this level of the bar that we need to hit and campuses, no, esports needs to go away. But the way we tackled it was um, uh, our vice chancellor at the time commissioned a task force uh, of faculty, staff, students, community members, gamers to look at the opportunities, the ecosystem, where are we right now? What, what should we be doing immediately? What are our long-term opportunities? What would we do if we had all the resources in the world? And so we met at monthly for five or six months and then uh, the faculty chair drafted up kind of our plan. It turned out to be a 15-page document that's since been published in a, in a journal. But we, we identified challenges, the opportunities, and essentially we've used that as a roadmap over the last few years to make sure that we're doing everything we said we were going to do. And it's pleasantly surprising. We looked at it a year ago, and we have pretty much checked off every box that we can legally check off. There's a lot of barriers to... Certain, certain activities, like we can't give away our free equipment. We can't give our equipment away to like low-income schools like we had thought we might be able to. There's also rules in California about having programs for just certain populations. So you have to really be thoughtful about making sure they're open to everybody. But um, overall, we have checked every box on that plan. And then uh, we re-met with our vice chancellor of diversity, equity, inclusion recently. And so instead of commissioning a new task force, 
Our current plan is to work with all those de departments on campus that are focused on diversity and inclusion, using their resources, their expertise to continue to level up what we're doing um, to make sure that our, our teams and our players are understanding the issues and we are making our program as welcoming and inclusive as we can. Yeah, I, I would expect this, you're getting a lot of questions from other schools about the plan and then using it as a roadmap. So I, I certainly expect you get a lot of a lot of questions and praise in the fact that you took that leadership role in that area. You mentioned a little bit earlier about research in the esports industry, and I want to tie that into the UCI esports conference that you've been holding over the last couple of years. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about that conference and how that supports the bigger picture esports as an industry. Absolutely. Well, I would say one of the uh, outcomes of our pitch to the chancellor in 2015, the one, the one request they made, uh, the chancellor made was that we needed to engage with the research arm of the university. For those of you who don't know, UCI is a tier one research university. It is the most important thing that UCI does. And so you feel that pressure no matter what you're doing on campus. And so when you're doing something new, this was a request and we took it seriously. So uh, 2017, as we wrapped up our first year of existence, we had a symposium that some faculty helped us throw. They invited some speakers to talk about research around games and esports, denoted by the famous T.L. Taylor of MIT, who uh, kind of wrote the first, first books on esports many years ago. And after that, we decided, you know what, let's do, let's, let's elevate this to a full-blown conference. So we made it a kind of peer-reviewed academic conference starting in 2018, and since then, it's evolved to be both a, a place where we showcase global research on esports that faculty, researchers, and academics do. Um, but we also have added in some practitioner tracks. So you see collegiate leaders like myself, as well as high school and scholastic leaders, because esports not only exists professionally, it's come down to high school or sorry, college, now high school and middle school. And so it's a place for everyone to engage. The researchers want to know what's actually happening in schools, how this has been applied to education, and the educators want to know what the research is telling us. So it's this pretty cool place where uh, practice and research connect. And so, yeah, it's a pretty cool place. Um, we have keynotes every single year. One is from the professional scholastic side. One's always on diversity, equity, inclusion, because it is just such a huge challenge. We need to address it. So we've always had a keynote on that. And now we've added a keynote on the scholastic world as well. So some, someone in the K through 12 space talking about esports as well. So that's what it is. Our, our fourth annual conference will be this October, all virtual. Uh, and you can just Google UCI esports conference and it'll pop up. Um, we're about to submit our call for proposals. So um, we're hoping to see another huge turnout in terms of submitting research. And then we'll review that and then select the best of the best to be showcased at the conference. All right. We'll be sure to link that in our show notes so that uh, all our audience gets a, easy access to it. So the, the conference itself, you mentioned you do different research in the area. Could you give us some examples of what that research actually is? Yeah, there's a lot of people trying to figure out how to make the best esports athlete, right? So performance. So one question I think a lot of professional esports athletes and teams want to know is, are there tools you can use to train the skills you need for video games? Are there tools you can use that are better than just playing the game over and over and over? And I think we all really want the answer to be yes to that. So that there's things you can do instead of just playing this game over and over and over, try to train behaviors, communication, 
uh, aim, uh, mechanics, whatever that is to become a better athlete. So that's, that's one thing I've continued to see. The health and wellness aspect is another huge aspect of this. People are really terrified of, of what's going to happen to people who sit and play games all day. Um, I personally don't think it's our most urgent issue. I don't see a ton of injuries in esports. And I, I sit at a computer just as much as any of my athletes do. So it's not like I think they're uniquely vulnerable to it. But uh, a lot of people are interested in the health and wellness and exercise. The stereotypical gamer drinks energy drinks, stays up late, doesn't exercise. And I will tell you, that is that is not the case anymore. And so people under, understand that sleep improves your performance. What you put in your body impacts your mind and your cognition and how you function. Um, and when you're exercising, your heart's better, your mind's better. Uh, I will say the understanding around the benefits of health and wellness and sleep um, have grown quickly. And I think there's no controversy around that. And I think, uh, like I said, esports athletes are going to be healthier, fitter, uh, and more conscious about their bodies than, than I'd say the, the typical critic of esports would, would believe. It is, it is interesting if we follow the history of a lot of sports. I'm thinking about golf or any of the X Games, skaters, or you know, these guys are all in the gym. They're all maximizing their sleep performance. They're all watching the HRVs. They're all watching the heart rates. They're all trying to figure out how to maximize that physical performance so they can perform at a high mental level. So, yeah, it only makes sense. It only makes sense. All right. So you mentioned helping them build these life skills. So tell us a little bit how those life skills translate to the careers that the students are doing after they graduate. Well, um, I'll say we, we've done some research around what students learn through esports, uh, specifically in the high school space. I've been pretty involved with a high school esports initiative called NASEF, the North America Scholastic Esports Federation. I currently serve as commissioner, but there have been uh, some research done with faculty at UCI around how students are developing and learning in that. And the number one outcome uh, in terms of what people are learning, it's socio-emotional learning and life like skills about how to interact with other people, how to regulate your emotions. People are realizing that if you yell at your teammates because you're frustrated, your team performs worse. Um, so I would say a lot of those socio-emotional tools that are going to help you in life uh, are being developed. One interesting finding just for people who are curious, it's unique that esports, when you when you see these results, it actually benefits low-income students, low socio uh, economically advantaged or disadvantaged populations um, more so than it does other ones. We don't know necessarily why yet. Maybe it's less exposure to traditional sports, but overall uh, that's what people are getting out of it. Um, so I think you're learning how to communicate. You're learning how to support your teammate, get product, uh, productive feedback. You're learning how to uh, deal with conflict in ways that uh, again, if you're just playing games online with no supervision, no adults in the room, you're not going to learn those skills. And so I think that's the really powerful thing is you're, you're doing something you're passionate about, but you have a little bit of mentorship. You have a little bit of elder kind of involvement. And so, yeah, uh, I would say additionally with our program, we're really focused on career development. So all of our players get resume support. They all have a polished resume. We do interview support. We're posting jobs and uh, internship opportunities. And so while we're doing all these things in the game, teaching them how to communicate, work together, problem solve, they're also getting this additional layer of career development support, uh, understanding what, what a good resume looks like and a good cover letter versus not good. Um, and so those are some of the additional things that I think we've done with our program that's very unique. 
But overall, there's so much learning that's happening in video games uh, when there is a coach or mentor, a teacher in the room. And so that's, I think, one of the really powerful interventions that's happening in esports. Uh, I expect that a lot of, of the students end up in careers in content creation, sales, marketing, and even esports teams. So uh, there's no end to the, the areas that these skills are going to play out for them as they continue to um, you know, go through their life journey. All right, Mark, we covered a lot of good stuff here, a lot of good information. Uh, if you were to kind of give a recap to our audience on, you know, best practices with regards to their esports program, how would you sum all that up for us? Well, I think the first thing I would say is just take a moment to reflect on the importance of video games in our world right now. 90-something percent of young people are playing them. It is the most engaging form of entertainment. And entertainment's evolved from newspapers to radio to TV to movies to now video games where you have agency over your story. Um, and so understanding that this is something you need to engage with, this is where young people are, I think is step one. Uh, if you don't see value in it, if you don't see the importance of it, uh, it's something that, that can fall down on the priority list, but your, your students are gaming, <laughs> uh, almost all of them. So I, I would say overall, uh, piece of advice, talk to your students, talk to some of the club leaders. It's very likely administrators have a club on campus that's about games or esports, um, community building. I would certainly listen to their feedback and work with them to build something that they think uh, would be popular on campus, would resonate with them. Certainly a fully fledged esports program would be ideal for many students, where there's facilities and scholarships and coaches and all that glamour. Um, but I know that's not possible everywhere. So start with your students, listen to their thoughts, uh, and try to work with them to build something that makes sense for your campus. Great insight, great advice. Mark, really appreciate the conversation. Love the passion that you have for esports. It certainly comes out loud and clear for us. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. And thank you to our listeners. We'd love to get your feedback on how today's conversation went. And certainly encourage everyone to subscribe to our Higher Ed Advisor podcast. Make sure that you continually get updates on new episodes that will be coming out on a regular basis. Thank you for joining us today. To receive notification when new episodes become available, please subscribe to Baker Tilly US wherever you get your podcast.